I've thought a lot about what I should teach these four Sundays. I know the old-timers would remember every sermon I ever preached here, so I decided to take a passage that I never dealt with during those two decades. We're going to focus on one of the great characters of the Old Testament, Joseph. The philosopher Hegel once said that if history teaches us anything, it is that history teaches us nothing. And the point he was making is that we so often fail to learn the lessons that history provides. But the fact is, God has put a lot of history in his word. We naturally gravitate, I think, more to the doctrinal portions, the practical portions, the prophetic portions. But there is good reason to pay attention to the historical narratives in God's word. In 1 Corinthians 10, after rehearsing a number of incidents from the lives of the ancient Israelites, the Apostle Paul said this, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. But Old Testament history is not just written to us for warning. It's also there for edification and encouragement. And Joseph is someone whom we can receive a great deal of encouragement. He's one of only a few Bible characters about whom no overt sin is recorded. He was a sinner, of course, but what stands out in his story is faithfulness and integrity and responsibility and forgiveness. And while we can learn much from the negative examples in Scripture, we also need these positive examples uh, to, to show us how to live. And so I want to take four vignettes from Joseph's life this month, and we're going to start with um, the fact that uh, dysfunctional families are a terrible curse on us. And uh, we're going to ask the question, what happens when parents play favorites? Joseph lived in the 19th century B.C. He was the fourth of the great patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. 4,000 years is a long time ago. But I think we need to resist the notion that Joseph was some kind of a prehistoric character from whom we really can't, with whom we really can't relate. He actually spent most of his life in a culture far more advanced than anything in our country prior to the 20th century. Ancient Egypt in the 19th century BC was producing amazing results in science and literature and astronomy and engineering and architecture. The great pyramids of Giza were already 700 years old when Joseph was there. And the Sphinx was already showing the ravages of time. Joseph's life is fascinating for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that his life parallels that of Jesus Christ, perhaps more than any other biblical character. Some scholars uh, call him a type of Christ, a divinely point, uh, painted portrait of Christ. And I think there's some real truth to that. 
Think of some of the aspects of Joseph's life that parallel Christ. He was deeply loved by his father. He was rejected by his brothers. He experienced a sojourn in Egypt. He was punished undeservedly. He exercised faith in God through the most trying of circumstances. He forgave those who betrayed him. He remained free of bitterness. And he was elevated to a uh, place of prominence from talking about Joseph's life. I think that it is careful. we need to be careful not to spend too much time on that because Joseph was a real person from whom we can learn important life lessons just from his life. And that brings me to the second reason I believe it is well worth our time to study this man. And that is that he consistently demonstrated amazing character. He was obedient, faithful, courageous, persevering through incredibly difficult circumstances. Think of the trials that you have been through or you could go through in your lifetime, like a dysfunctional family, rejection, betrayal, isolation, sexual temptation, loss of a job for unfair reasons, a monumental task for which you have no experience. Joseph experienced all of these, and to an extreme degree, he was a flesh and blood saint who wrestled with the worst that Satan could throw at him and came out victorious. That should give us courage to continue in our Christian lives. This morning we're going to focus on the first of these trials, that of being reared in a dysfunctional family. I've often wondered if the term dysfunctional family isn't a redundancy because we're all dysfunctional. The biblical term for that or the theological term is total depravity, which doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, but it means that sin has infected every area of our lives. There is a sense in which every family suffers from dysfunction. But I'm sure we would all admit that some families suffer more than others. And we know that when a family suffers from dysfunction, the children suffer especially. They have a tough road to walk. We're inclined to cut some slack to children who grow up in families where there's abuse and deprivation. Well, let me tell you something. It would be hard to find a family anywhere with more dysfunction than Joseph's family. Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 37 and read the account of it. This is a long portion of Scripture, so I'm going to let you remain seated, but I don't want you to disengage. The public reading of the Bible may actually be the most important thing we're doing here this morning. The observations that I add to the text I hope will be helpful, but only this is the Word of God. For some years in Wichita, we have followed an ancient practice of the church. When the Scripture is read, the pastor says, this is the word of the Lord. And the people respond, thanks be to God. If you don't mind a little bit of liturgy, I would invite you to do that after the reading of the text. I'm reading from the NIV, Genesis 37. 
find it here. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send them, send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take, them back, take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up 
out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. In examining the dysfunction of Joseph's family, I won't go back to his grandparents and great-grandparents, although that would add a great deal more evidence. We would simply look at his own father, Jacob, who, as you would recall, deceived his father and stole his brother Esau's birthright. The conflict stirred up by that deception, uh, forced Jacob to leave his family and go live with his uncle Laban. There he fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. But Laban was a greedy scoundrel and required Jacob to work for seven years before he could have the hand of his daughter. At the end of that long probation period, he entered his wedding tent only to discover that Laban had substituted his older maiden daughter for Rachel. And he had to work another seven years before he could hand, have the hand of the one he loved. Um, Jacob had to obligate himself to do this for Laban. And later, he added two more wives who are mentioned in our text, but he made it clear to all of them that Rachel was his favorite. Not surprisingly, this caused considerable jealousy in the home. God has forbidden polygamy to us, and there are good reasons for that. And the jealousy that is stirred up is not the least of those reasons. To make matters worse, all of these wives of Jacob were having children, except for Rachel, causing tremendous grief to her. Eventually, however, God looked with favor on Rachel and gave her a son, Joseph's 11th son, besides, of course, several daughters. Jacob not only played favorites among his wives, he did the same among his sons, for Joseph was favored by his father. Joseph was the apple of his father's eye, and he made no effort to conceal it. I want to ask a simple question this morning. What happens when parents play favorites? And the answer to that question is nothing good. And I don't mean absolutely nothing, because God is able to bring good out of the worst of circumstances in our lives. But this might be the best place to bring up what I think is the key verse of all of Joseph's life. It comes from the end of his life, 
in chapter 50 and uh, verse 20, it says, this is his own testimony at the end of his life, where he speaks to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. There are many things that are harmful that happen to us. Some are accidental. Some are intentional. God has amazing power to bring good out of those things. But that doesn't make the bad things good. That doesn't excuse the evil person who perpetrates them upon us. And it doesn't restore the life that is lost or the reputation that is ruined. When parents play favorites, it sets in motion terrible twists and turns in the lives of children. The favored child rarely sees that he is favored, and this causes arrogance and irresponsibility in that child. And the child who is not favored invariably suffers confusion toward the parent, resentment toward the favored sibling, and, of course, poor self-esteem. They invariably ask themselves, why doesn't my father or my mother love me? What have I done to deserve this? There's no doubt that such family dynamics were at play in this home. The text clearly tells us Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And it tells us why. Because Joseph was born to him in his old age. There's undoubtedly a tendency for parents to be more lenient with their younger children, especially their youngest. Sometimes it's because they want to avoid the mistakes they made with their older children. So they spend more time with the younger child. They um, are more cautious in their discipline. And and, um, they feel like they were too harsh, perhaps, with their older children. Furthermore, parents usually have more resources when they are older, and they tend to spend those on the younger child. Uh, Joseph's coat of many colors is a case in point, uh, as Jacob does this in his family. Another probable factor in Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph is the fact that his mother had died by this time. Rachel had one more child, that is Benjamin, probably born when Joseph was 13 or 14, and then she died in childbirth. And uh, Jacob, I suspect, feels sad for his teenage son, his young teenage son, losing his mother at such a critical time of his life. But the ultimate effect of Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph is that he is hated by his brothers. It states categorically in verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Who is at fault here? Well, certainly the brothers are at fault. Scriptures tell us the hate is tantamount to murder. Furthermore, the three older sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, uh, are, they all have criminal records recorded for us in chapters 34 and 35, so they're not just innocent victims of family dynamics here. 
But I think Jacob is even more guilty than Joseph's brothers. Their sin is instigated by his sin. If he had not favored one of his sons, he would not have been hated by the others. I have seen many families where parental favoritism has caused tremendous pain and destructiveness. I've seen the wounds in the lives of the child who is neglected. I've seen the resentment created between siblings when a parent favors one child over the other. And I've seen families split completely apart. I have a pastor friend in Mount Hope, Kansas, not far from Wichita, who shared with me how difficult it was for him when his father left the family farm to his older brother. His older brother decided to stay in at the farm, stay, stay in the business, but he had gone to seminary to go into ministry. And so his father left the farm and all the equipment, everything, to his older brother. I understand the parents' desire to preserve the family farm, but there are other ways they could have done that. They could have split the farm and allowed the older brother to rent the younger brother's portion, but instead they bequaved resentment and, and uh, permanent struggles between these boys. By the way, there's another reason for the hatred of Jacob's, uh, Joseph's brothers toward him besides his father's favoritism. It's mentioned in verse 2. He brought their father a bad report about them. Apparently, Joseph was helping tend the flocks one day and saw the boys uh, breaking some family rule. Maybe they were drinking or chasing women or something. We don't know what it was. Don't know for sure whether this was justified on Joseph's part, but he squealed on them. And that fueled the fire of the brother's resentment toward him. But in case you thought things couldn't get any worse, think again. In verses 5 to 11, we discover that he is hated all the more. Joseph has two dreams which he shares with his brothers. I don't know if Joseph is simply naive here or if uh, his, the favoritism of his father has caused him to lose all perspective, but I have at least some sympathy for his brothers in this situation. Um, Joseph had no control over the content of these dreams but he didn't necessarily have to share them with his brothers, which he did. He says, your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And then he adds in verse 9 of the second dream, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. This time even his father rebukes him, probably because his father was told that he would have to bow down to Joseph. What's clear from the revelation of these dreams is that they become the straw that breaks the camel's back. In verse 8 it says, they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So it's the combination of parental favoritism and Joseph's own naive or perhaps immature relating of these dreams brings the brothers to the point that they're willing to betray their brother. We really shouldn't be surprised at this result. The book of James chapter 3 and verse 16 tells us that where you have envy and selfish ambition, 
There you find disorder and every evil practice. This is exhibit one. Starting in verse 12, we find that Joseph is betrayed and sold. The brothers had taken Jacob's considerable herds to, uh, to pasture near Shechem, about 30 miles north of the family home near Hebron. Such, such trips could take weeks, so Jacob sends Joseph to check on the brothers to see if they are okay. But when Joseph arrives there, he is told that the brothers have moved on to Dothan, about 20 miles north. They spot Joseph coming. It isn't difficult, considering this unique coat that he is wearing. Before he even arrives, they have hatched a plot for his betrayal. I can imagine them saying, here comes Golden Boy with his fancy coat and his dreams that someday we will bow down to him. Enough is enough. He had one opportunity to give our father a bad report. We're not going to give him another. Reuben, the oldest brother, and therefore the one with the most to lose, think inheritance here, decides that uh, he doesn't want any blood on his hands, so he suggests they throw Joseph into a cistern. A cistern is an underground storage unit for water, although this one is dry, we are told. Reuben intends to come back for him later, when everybody else is asleep, and to rescue Joseph and take him back to his father. But while Reuben is gone for some unknown reason, a caravan of Ishmaelites heading for Egypt happens by. Judah argues that killing Joseph will gain them nothing, and he suggests they sell him to the Ishmaelites, which they do for 20 pieces of silver. Now, it's not hard to hear the sound of 30 pieces of silver being traded for Jesus' life by Judas. I think the Holy Spirit wants us to hear that sound. Our story doesn't tell us anything about Joseph's feelings while all this is going on. But later, the brothers reflect back on this incident by revealing a private conversation that was going on between them. It's found in 42:21. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life but we would not listen. Friends, that probably just scratches the surface of the trauma this 17-year-old must have experienced. When Reuben returns, he is surprised and fearful to find the cistern empty and Joseph gone. But it's too late, and so all of them, I take it including Reuben, hatch a plot to explain this to their father. They dip Joseph's coat in animal blood, take it back to their father, and ask him to examine it to see if it is Joseph's coat, as if they didn't know. They are pleased when he comes to the conclusion himself that this is Joseph's coat, and he must have been killed by some wild animal. But they are probably surprised at the level of grief that Jacob experiences. He mourns many days. He weeps. 
He refuses to be comforted by his family. He tells them he will never get over Joseph's death. He will mourn until he goes to meet him in the grave. Perhaps the brothers believe they have committed the perfect crime. As long as none of them squeals, then they won't be found out. And since they're all guilty, none of them will squeal. And thankfully, there are no DNA tests to distinguish human blood from animal blood. Well, friends, there is no such thing as a perfect crime. God sees everything. In addition, these brothers know what they have done, and their consciences will never let them forget it. Our chapter ends with Joseph sold again into slavery. The last verse reads, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Think about the tragic events in this 17-year-old's life. He has gone from being the favorite of a very rich father, free of responsibility, free to dream, to being thrown into a pit, threatened with death, sold like a piece of meat to foreigners, sold again in the slave capital of the ancient world. And believe me, being a slave in Egypt was no picnic. Some 900 years later, King David writes about this event in Psalm 105. He adds further information about Joseph's feelings and how he suffered Revealed to him, I think, by the Holy Spirit or perhaps through some ancient record of the event. Here's what it says. God called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food and he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass till the Lord, word of the Lord proved him true. On top of all that physical cruelty, Joseph finds himself in a foreign country with strange language, strange customs, strange religions, strange dress, diet, everything, all at the age of 17. Friends, that's the kind of results that can be produced by parental favoritism. I say the kind of because this exact situation probably has never happened since. But other awful situations have happened. Some not quite as bad, some worse. Having rehearsed the story, I want to offer you three challenges for us to consider. The first is directed to parents. I plead with you to renounce parental favoritism. I know your children are not all the same. Mine certainly aren't. One is undoubtedly more compliant than the others. One may be a harder worker than the others. One may be more spiritually sensitive than another, more responsible with money than another. One may be just frankly more lovable than another. But don't play favorites. 
make a strong, conscious effort to treat them equally in respect to the love you give them, the time you offer them, the help you extend to them, and even in your wills. I know some of you are saying to yourselves, but what if one child is totally irresponsible? Are you saying that that child should be given the same inheritance as the others? Yes. Or at least they should be given the same opportunity. There are creative ways to encourage responsibility. A parent can decide to give X amount of money to each child who achieves a certain level of education or who stays out of consumer debt or who stays off of drugs. Then if the child fails, they have only themselves to blame. One can also choose to leave money gradually to a child. Say 10% in one year and 10 more the f- five years later so that it isn't all, doesn't evaporate. Or one can skip a generation and give money to grandchildren instead of children. There's actually a biblical grounds for that. In Psalm, or rather Proverbs 13:22. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. I don't think that's a requirement, but it is a possibility. If that's what you choose, then you should treat your grandchildren equally also. Someone else may be saying, but what if my child has rejected our family values completely? My dear friend Brad Harper, who served here um, in our church and then in Cornerstone for 14 years, has experienced just that in his family. Brad and his son Drew have written a book about it, Space at the Table, Conversations Between an Evangelical Theologian and His Gay Son. It's not an easy book to read, by the way, but it's a phenomenal example of how parents have rejected favoritism even when a child makes choices that the parent cannot condone. The second primary application I want to leave with you today is for parents and children, and that is to break the cycle of dysfunction. There is no question but the dysfunction sometimes remains in a family for generation upon generation. Some families go back for years, decades, perhaps even centuries in the way they operate with dysfunction. But Joseph broke the cycle that had been going for generations in his family. He had one wife. He had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. In the last chapter of Genesis, we read this summary of Joseph's life. It says, Joseph stayed in Egypt With all his father's family, he lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, his grandchildren, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Now that certainly doesn't tell us all we would like to know about how Joseph operated, but it it sure sounds different from the way his father Jacob operated.
We can choose to break the cycle, friends. We can choose to love well. We can choose to say, as Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Finally, an application for everyone. Remember the one who was greater than Joseph, who was born into a dysfunctional family, the human race, but who has broken the cycle of sin. I'm talking, of course, about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom Joseph ultimately points. He left the glories of heaven to be born into a poor carpenter's family. He was betrayed. He was sold. He was eventually killed. But in dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. We do not have to live as victims of dysfunction, all of which, all of our dysfunction is a result of sin because God provided a solution. He offers us freedom and the free gift of salvation if we will turn from our sin and embrace his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we humbly ask for your help that we might be parents who parent in a godly way, that we might grandparent well. You have set an example for us by loving us unconditionally, all your children. In fact, you've said, you've told us that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.